I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. So welcome everybody. My name's Jude Kelly and I've got the privilege of talking tonight to Jacqueline Rose. We've all got the privilege of listening in and watching and then adding in our questions. Got just over an hour and it's a, a tough subject that we're going to be discussing with Jacqueline, a, a really uh, forensic analysis of so many aspects of violence and violence against women from this extraordinary book. For those of you who don't know Jacqueline, there can't be many. She's the renowned feminist literary and cultural critic. She's the co-director of Birkbeck Institute for the Humanities at the University of London. She co-founded the Independent Jewish Voices and she's a fellow of the British Academy. And she's a frequent contributor to London Review of Books. I think this is almost like your family home. And obviously The Guardian, many other publications. She's renowned across the world for her thinking. And I think many of us who have searched for how to live humanely, but think clearly, turn to Jacqueline's work uh, for some of the, not just the answers, but some of the ways to live with doubt, some of the ways to reconcile unknowns with trying to chart a path and, and living with the place in history we find ourselves with, with all the pain and unresolved issues, not just for women, although that's probably my thing, but for all of us. Uh, her previous book, uh, Mothers, an essay on love and cruelty, was published in 2018, and we had a great conversation then, so I was thrilled that she if you like, invited me back to have another conversation. Uh, and, and before we start, I just wanted to say that this book, uh, if you haven't bought it, um, here it is, get it, was wonderfully and maybe ironically picked as the top 20 books this spring uh, by Esquire. Probably not a magazine we'd associate with this level of liberal consideration, but who knows. But they gave it a brilliant review, which it deserves. So Jacqueline, welcome. It's just great to start this conversation together. Okay, well, let me start, of course, by returning the compliment, Jude. I mean, of course, I was going to invite you back. We've had several conversations, actually. We had one about women in dark times at the Purcell Room about seven years ago, where you started off by saying to me, excuse me, can you just tell me whenever there's been a time that wasn't dark for women? That was your opening question. And also, I wanted to say that it's it's an honor for me, actually, to be with you today because of the extraordinary work you've been doing in the last few years for the Women of the World Festival. And you kindly sent me the link to the marathon. I think it was about 10 days ago. I think it was March the 21st or 23rd. I can't remember. The marathon session you had of two, nearly two and three quarter hours of women and some men literally from all over the world talking about violence against women. And of course, they would immediately take issue with the title of my book because violence against women is seen to drop the perpetrator. It should be male violence, should be the subject, which I'm sure we'll come to in our 
discussion, but I just want to start by acknowledging what an incredible event I thought that was, how moving, how powerful, how informative, and how inspiring just that number of women together talking about everything from Yemen and war uh, through to trying to teach boys to think and behave differently. So from the minutiae of psychological life into the battlefield, it managed to spread right across the sphere. So thank you for that. And um, so I'm as delighted to be here with you as the reverse. Thank you, Jude. <laughs> well, I know that you asked me to reflect a bit on that, uh, that moment. And so I'll just say a little bit about it. Obviously, you're right. I started the WOW Women of the World Festivals 11 years ago at a time when we hadn't uh, reached out enough across the globe as sisters, non-binary and trans to come together and say there are so many things that are unresolved and deepening in terms of injustice, all because of systemic uh, inequality and we have to know more and we have to learn more from each other and we have to unlearn things a key ingredient unlearning what histories we've been taught what attitudes we have what entitlement we think we deserve um, and I suppose after the terrible consequences uh, of the Sarah Everard vigil we also felt that we had to attend to the say her name framework that um, Kimberly Crenshaw had created, uh, that, that so many women don't get named, and those that do get named are often named because of the position we have of who's entitled and who's not. And so we, we came really together to say that Nicole Smallman, Bieber Henry had to also be remembered. We wanted uh, Brianna Taylor to be remembered alongside George Floyd. We wanted to say that uh, kind of the, the whole idea, or as you say, from the, the girl in the classroom, who doesn't know how to deal with being humiliated through to the Yazidi women are all part of the same story. And how do we put our forces together? A, to say that, and then and then what? And it's, it's the and then what that I think, you know, we are all puzzling about, but determined by exposing what we know um, to say we won't let it rest. And, and so I'm, I'm going to come to your book, which in so many ways, um, it, it threads right the way through it, something which you know you raised straight away, that this is about violence, not only by men, but male violence on other men and male violence on women is something which you either believe is insoluble, there in perpetuity, never ending, or something you suggest in your book is something which can be worked with and dealt with and then changed. And you, you, there's, a, there's a lovely quote, and I say this for the men listening who I'm assuming are these men. There are men, though not enough of them, who recognize the lethal farce of the masculinity on offer and want none of it. Otherwise, there'd be no hope. So perhaps I can begin there, Jacqueline, which is, have you got hope that this pandemic which has gone on for ions is something which could shift can change can be addressed yeah well, have you got it's a million dollar question and my answer is going to be yes and no in the sense that i don't think it's insoluble 
but I think it's almost intractable. And I would want to say those two things together. And I say almost intractable because I think the definition of masculinity, which is on offer, the lethal farce of the version of masculinity on offer, is powerful in direct proportion to its fraudulence because it offers an identity to men and makes them beholden to this identity of certainty, of confidence, of power, of strength, of mental security. And one of your speakers said, um, in fact, I think it was uh, the prosecutor, the chief prosecutor for the Northeast of England yeah. as well. He said, uh, women are worthless and they have to be completely controlled. And you think, well, that he, really... He, he, was quoted, he wasn't saying he thought that. He was saying this is one of the stereotypes, that women are inferior and they must be completely controlled. Well, you can drive a wedge, a horse and coaches through that. Because if they're inferior, they can surely be disregarded. If they have to be controlled, they must be dangerous. And Luke Hart was on Women's Hour, was, was in a discussion with Isval um, a few weeks ago in The Guardian. And you probably, some of you will know that Luke Hart's mother and sister were murdered by his father. And he said he thought it was entitlement and resentment. It was a combination of the two. Thus say that the father was a patriarchal tyrant in the home, but he also was endlessly resentful towards his wife who was accountable for everything that went wrong in their lives and their world. So again, this is a contradiction because it gives women absolute power on the one hand. And on the other hand, it makes them not entitled to anything except the violence which the first position enjoins on them. So I'm interested in those moments where a certain version of masculinity, which is lethal, and I think we witnessed this on a daily basis and it was at the center of your event, a certain version of masculinity which is lethal can be seen to be fraudulent, precarious, and dangerous in direct proportion to the fact that it is a complete and utter lie. And it's a lie because nobody is spared mortality, fragility, what Judith Butler would call precariousness, hunger, anxiety, loss of love, insecurity, sexual confusion, bad dreams. Nobody is spared that. But somehow women are made responsible for all those things in a way that is any woman knows is a complete nonsense, right? So there's a kind of hope in the fact that nobody could possibly live up to this. At the moment, I feel women are being punished for not living up to this. Let's say if there's been um, what's been called a shadow pandemic um, at the moment of increased domestic violence against women, I think it's partly because women are expected to be accountable for the fragility for life and to save men from it. And when people are dying at the rate that they are, there is no way that any woman can protect a man from that knowledge. No way, no way that she could anyway, but it's particularly acute. So my feeling is that there's a kind of hope, hopefulness in the fact that deep down, everybody knows this is rubbish. And one of the peculiarities about what's going on at the moment is the shadow pandemic of feminicide, as it's been called, or femicide against women, the increasing murders of women in the lockdown, but also the revelation 
of violence against women and what one of your speakers called our George Floyd moment in relationship to gender violence. So we're living on a kind of precipice where everything is getting worse, but it's also becoming more visible and more transparent and provoking responses. So I, so my answer is, yeah, I guess it's yes and no to your, your question. Through the book, there's a phrase, the impotence of bigness, which I loved because it, it, it conjures up visually so many examples, whether you're talking about the Incredible Hulk or, you know, Lenny in Mice and Men, or a, a sort of sense that the bigness of masculinity and, and the bigness of power somehow should always be able to be effective. And therefore, when it isn't effective, the, the sense of impotency produces despair and rage. And that seems to be true whether you're talking about failing governments who then bring all their forces to bear on their civilian populations, or you're talking about somebody in their home unable to deal with their personal anxieties and feeling as if somehow they can't stamp onto their family the need to give them that certainty. This impotence is what you're talking about, isn't it? It's the, it's the frailty that's within all of us that's been told that it shouldn't ever feel this frail. That's right, absolutely. You put it so clearly, clearly, more clearly than I could. I mean, Hannah Arendt is the author of the phrase, the impotence of bigness. And of course, um, well, there's controversy about whether she can be thought of as a feminist thinker. Um, and I would say that th this phrase merits her a place in the corridor of feminist fame. <laughs> All on its own, never mind her analysis of the tyranny of the Greek despot in the family home, which is also very strong on. But she has this wonderful sentence where she says, she talks about the, the terror in confronting those realms in which man cannot change or act and in which he therefore has a distinct tendency to destroy. The realms in which man cannot change or act and in which he therefore has a distinct tendency to destroy. And I think that's such an important concept because it's implying that man's violence is in direct proportion to what may often be and mostly be an unconscious awareness of the fraudulence of his own power. And that's why Arendt says that power is the opposite of violence. Genuine power, which is empowerment, which is what feminists are fighting for, genuine empowerment is the opposite of violence. Violence increases when power is felt to be non-viable fraudulent or, to quote Freud on this, he talks about people suddenly being instructed to be violent in wartime when they've been told all the rest of the time they must never be violent, they must never kill, now they must kill. And he says in wartime, people are suddenly aware that the reason why violence was forbidden to them in the past is not because it was not allowed, but because the state actually wanted to monopolize it like salt and tobacco which say that the state has the monopoly on legitimate violence and then it releases it to its citizens according to instruction, according to mostly military instruction, although there's also a violence at the heart of our most basic social arrangements of capitalism, which has its disposable bodies and its destruction of the workers in the factories and its deaths, its premature deaths and so on. So there's sort of violence everywhere. But it's meant, it's meant to be something that we all have no part in. And then it erupts in the places where it's both being given a place and not being given a place at all. 
So I think impotent bigness is, is the key to the book. And it's part of my disagreement with radical feminism. I mean, I don't know if you were going to come on to this, but to say that power becomes violence when it is aware of its own, the impossibility of its project, the lethal farce of the form of masculinity on offer, to say that is really to go against one whole tradition of feminism, which says men are the embodiments of their worst social ethos. That's to say the toxic version of masculinity is what men are, and that is what they fulfill, and that is what women are fighting again against. And I feel that leaves, it doesn't leave us a glimmer of hope. It demands legal redress. It demands activism of a kind that Catherine McKinnon, for example, is very powerful on in terms of legal battles over equality and so on. And I respect that. But in terms of the notion of what makes a human subject, it feels so definitive to me that I find it just sort of deeply politically discouraging. Well, I suppose that's why I was asking you, you know, where hope lay? And you said yes and no. But inside that duality is this little belief, as you said, that it isn't that the principal issue of maleness is violence. It's that the expectations and frameworks that have surrounded masculinity turn many men into feeling that they have to, they ought to have power, even though they can't feel it you know, in their bones. Um, I will come on to this as well in a bit more detail, but can I just start by this, you know, that you talked earlier about, um, you know, the, 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 the idea of being a tyrant in your home. And it's something which certainly, you know, a girl from the north like me, you're sort of brought up on the idea, not that I've enacted this, but that, you know, a man can suffer travails outside the door. He comes through the door and it is the woman's job provide the pipe, the slippers, the food, keep the children quiet, have the fire lit. In other words, that there has to be one space where the man uh, is given total security and comfort and that it is the woman's job to do that. Now, I think that's a very traditional idea that is still pertaining in so many contexts. And even, you know, modern progressive families would claim not to be doing that, but I would posit that so much of the underpaid care and expectation of care that is, is put onto women is part of that idea of sealing up the cracks, covering over the problems, providing the, the um, chamomile lotion and the bandages. And that not, not to do that, which is an impossible task, not to do that, can produce in some men, first of all, irritation, and then some sense of like not being given their, their respect, yeah. not being given their due worth, and that that is the beginning of a lot of issues around violence. I think that's so right. And I think Hannah Arendt is brilliant on the description of the Greek despot in the home. Um, and she talks about how to be free in the police, in the public square of politics, which is the aim of political life, then the messy vicissitudes and dirtiness of life has to be channeled into the home where it is the task of the women to actually control it and master it so that men can feel they are this political figure in the political square where they debate and they govern and they are full citizens. So it's even worse than you've described. 
is that their identity as citizens, male citizens, which relies on slavery, by the way, as well, is completely dependent on women doing what is basically a clean-up job in the home, both psychically and physically. And what I think is so interesting about this is that it's, it, it implies that it is the woman's task clear away the mess of lived life. That must be invisible for people to believe in themselves outside the home. And, you know, when you talk about working mothers, for example, I mean, this just leads on to the question of mothers, but when you talk about working mothers, you do not mean mothers who bring their babies to work, right? <laughs> the, last, the last thing a working mother does is work and mother. She has to keep the domains completely separate. And that, of course, is, is, is part of the same process. So when Sheryl Sandberg says lean in, i.e. use your position to increase your rights in the boardroom, she does not mean bring your baby to work and change its nappy under the noses of all your colleagues in the boardroom. Of course she doesn't. But I do think this does lead to the question of mothers, because when I was researching the mother's book, I was so horrified by some of the things I found, like 54,000 women a year in the UK sacked for being pregnant or for becoming young mothers. I mean, I could not believe that statistic. I had to go back to it again and again and again. And I ended up feeling that mothers are hated. I mean, the more statistics I read, the more it felt as if, you know, like, workplaces that are giving facilities for disabled workers are not giving facilities for pregnant mothers, not allowing women time off to go to go and actually have their scans and their tests and their prenatal classes. That's say they're actually endangering the lives of the mothers and the babies, on which, of course, they also completely depend for their own futurity. And I thought, what's, why, why is this the case? And I thought it's because it is believed that mothers can make everything okay, right? They can make everything okay for their babies and they can make, they can, that their task is to pull off another fast one, which is to say that the world can be made safe because your task as a mother is to keep your baby alive, right? The world can be made safe and the world is fair and good and sunny. Well, to be a, within two minutes of being a mother, you know that the world is neither fair nor just, and you know that you are a complex, fraught, torn, conflictual human subject. If you haven't already known it before, you know it. So I think it's because mothers know, again, the fraudulence of what's being asked of them. They say that to be a mother is to know that within two seconds, that men get so angry with them because they're not doing the psychic job they're being asked to do. And I think that's it's it's deeply dispiriting. And I think the only way that that can be addressed, and it's also central to this book, is by bringing to the surface of public consciousness an awareness of the psychic complexity of who we are, an awareness of the fears and the dangers and the insecurities and the sexual ambiguities, and allowing a space in the bedroom and the boardroom for those things to circulate more freely. So we're not engaged in asking mothers to silence it and asking men to control it. We have to find a different, a different modulation of what psychic life is for any of this to really change. Yes, and I, I think that when I, I'm a theatre director, and so you know I have watched thousands of films and plays where the role of the mother and the wife is to placate, to soothe to you know to, to turn a chaos back into um 
order when being a, a you know a parent and a grandmother as well myself now i know that like it's constant chaotic messy turbulence but as you say the the courage for women to start talking openly about all of those things all of the mess all of the complexity all of the dissonance when you present that back into a framework that is supposed to have all these certainties that's where i think the hope may lie because if you like male certainty has to rely on female certainty to mirror the idea and if women stop mirroring it which you know we're doing our best to stop mirroring that idea that we will do that and then i think it you know that's that's probably why there's more anger and more upsurge and more rage in a way at a point of trying to control it back into its box mm. so i you know I, i suppose i have hope in the sense that um women are trying to say we're never getting back in that box mm. you know except through the most violent uh, violent force in which case somebody else will be speaking if we can't but the 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 one of the things that happened all the way through these lectures that you were giving which were you know the, the backbone of the book was that it wasn't just about you know men's relationship to women and what they expected of women but there is a very very strong journey in the book as well through south africa whole idea that white men also needed black people to stay in a certain place in their psyche so that this if you like this bigness which was also which is also white supremacy white entitlement could remain uh, and that even though south africa has gone through tremendous efforts to realign uh, through truth and reconciliation and so on actually it hasn't achieved justice and that the the history of entitlement and the history of masculinity and entitlement and white entitlement is still there and and has has not really been wrecked there's no been no real wrecking ball mm -hmm. uh, to stop it I, i wondered whether that that level of violence in south africa which which results in so many rapes and so many deaths to women but it isn't only to women it, the violence in the society is 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 so uh, potent against one of the most modern constitutions that's ever been written yeah and the only constitution when it was written that had the word dignity in it i mean this is a very uh painful topic cape town is known as the rape capital of the world the person who i learned most from in writing about south africa or one of the people i learned most from was margie orford who is known as the queen of crime in south africa and she wrote the best things i read on the oscar pistorius trial but her argument is that this violence against women is a displacement onto women of the bitter disappointment of the post apartheid dispensation to which i would add it's not just the bitter disappointment of the post apartheid dispensation which means that racial inequality is as acute now as it ever was and in some ways worsening even though politically constitutionally and legally it was close on a revolution although my friends in south africa say don't use that word because the economic and social failures mean that it was not a revolution even if it was a partial one we can't use the word okay so it's not just that there's been a failure in terms of the hopes for a genuine multiracial south africa which some people now see rainbow nation 
was a way of just covering over the continuing inequalities and the continued virulent racism in South Africa. It is the denial of that that is causing the trouble. So when the students started the Roads Must Fall campaign, and of course when I was writing about that, I had no idea that it was about to erupt in Bristol with the throwing of the statue into the river and that this whole thing was going to unleash a debate about how to teach history and black history and decolonization. I had no idea. But what was so clear when the students started the Rose Must Fall campaign and, and five years ago now, I think it was, um, they were told they should not be protesting because they were the born freeze, right? And the born freeze were the generation that did not live through the atrocities of apartheid and therefore should be in a different psychic space. Well, this is, it's impossible not to think psychoanalytically about this. This is a way of trying to re-repress and silence a traumatic history for which there had been truth up to a point, but no justice, because the Truth and Reconciliation Commission said truth instead of retributive justice, but it didn't allow redistributive justice either. So I think the point I'm making, sorry, in a slightly long-winded way, and of course we're going to open it up to listen to people here in a few minutes. Um, I think the point I'm making is that it's not just that there was a, there's been a huge letdown in hopes of South Africa, it's that a psychological process is going on where the next generation is not being allowed to enact its pain at the injustice which they feel the previous generations handed down to them. This in psychoanalysis would be called transgenerational haunting, where something passes down through the generations. It's another example of a very heady and potentially violent psychic mix, which gets worse if it's not acknowledged. So I would say a constant theme running through the book is the need to bring things to the surface that are the hardest to talk about. Yes, I, I was going to quote, actually, um, this is a wonderful piece of, many wonderful pieces of writing in your book. But, you know, this is an important thing you say, to hold in the mind what is hardest, to acknowledge that the past has not gone away, write it, breathe it, because we are already doing so. They're straight in the eye of the perpetrator, still at large, who knows, but takes no responsibility for what he has done. So it, it's a it's a plea through the book as a historian to say in the way that you wouldn't expect sexual trauma to eradicate itself from the psyche, you know, in a week, in a month, in a year, you know, maybe in a lifetime. Why do we expect nations to somehow, you know, jump up? And this whole kind of debate about progress, as in progress equals we mustn't have had a past that, that is going to weigh us down because we're forging to the future. I think that's another really fascinating part of the book, which is we have to acknowledge our history and go backwards and attend to them. You know, that's, I think that's, that's so, sorry, I think that's so right. And I think that's so a question for now, because one of the things mm -hmm. I'm starting to think about is what are we going to remember about the moment which we're living through? And are we going to remember the numbers of women who were killed during lockdown? Are we going to remember the fact that stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives was blind, willfully blind 
for the fact that stay at home if you're in a relationship of domestic abuse is a death sentence, can be and was has often been a death sentence. Are we going to remember the blinding of the gender factor of the pandemic? Are we going to remember the complexity of grief that people have gone through? What are we going to be allowed to remember? Or are we going to be given a narrative of progress, of vaccination progress, which is working? I mean, we have the worst death rate in Europe, and Boris Johnson is now streaking ahead in the opinion polls in relationship to Keir Starmer and Labour because of the vaccination rollout. And it's as if, even though he can say at moments we must be humble in the face of nature, it lasts for a split second, and then he's back on a roll of affirmation, assertion, celebration, bad jokes, and progress. Very, very dangerous, the myth of progress. It's been a catastrophe for the so-called colonists. I often was thinking if every single night, instead of the, the one night that Jess Phillips stood up in Parliament and read out the names of all the women who'd been killed, if every single night the same message was coming through about violence against women, would that have been more than a nudge, but something that would change our behaviour? I don't know. But we've got some fantastic questions. Just before we come to those questions, I want to ask you to talk a little bit about uh, writing and creativity, because, again, you know, we are the onslaught of ways of pe people talking about violence and particularly violence against women. I have found over my years, you know, as a, as a small blonde woman, very um, anxious making. You know, it, it is a kind of constant repetition that I'll be running through the woods away from the murderer, but I won't make it. Um, that's sort of in my mind all the time. And so I'm very interested in how you've chosen writers, uh, mainly women, but not only, who have been able to use and talk about violence in a way that doesn't re-pornographic, that's a word, it doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't reiterate it, it doesn't reaffirm the, the kind of uh, sexual overtones of it. it, it places it in a very different way. Is that something which you've been made part of your research or has it come at you just like because you're an avid reader? Um, it's sort of come at me. I mean, Anna Burns Milkman, which is one of the most important novels that I discuss, was the winner of the Booker Prize the year I was on the jury. And I read that book and I just fell in love with it. And it was the way it managed to combine encroachment, a word that should pass into the lexicon, which is sexual invasion without touch, but which completely Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It destroys the narrator's mind and body, except 
the affirmation of her being the voice that's telling the story. And it was that combination, and it's on the Northern Ireland border, which is at the heart of our anxieties over Brexit. It's about the borders of the body and it's about the borders of political space. And she manages to write a novel that just slides you across those borders at the same time as describing the violence which they impose and to which they subject the people who are part of that system. And I just thought this is like nothing I've ever read before, except the, another heroine of the book, of course, is Ema McBride whose novel, A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing, I think is absolutely astounding because of the way it talks about sexual violence. But let me say something about those two novels. They do absolutely expose the very form of violence that you're describing, Jude, in your horrendously vivid image of fear of running away from an assailant. They describe it, but in neither case does it stop them. From, and Roxane Gay would be another writer of whom this is true. The violence to which these women are subjected does not take away from them the internal complexity of their psychic lives. If anything, it intensifies it as a site of survival. And I'm very, very interested. When you just said, uh, you said something about the way these writers give you another space to go to, I think in a sense it's more painful than that. They take you right in there. I mean, in Anna Burns Milkman, you are literally the young girl walking along the road reading the book and the van moves up and it's exactly what you just described. But instead of that meaning a cutting off of your psychic repertoire, it allows these writers or they suggest that one way of responding is not just to fight back or to find a safe space, but to insist that it is your birthright to be a subject of psychic complexity anguish, ambivalence, and even, in the case of Roxane Gay, downright perversion, right? Mm -hmm. My husband is a hunter, I am a knife, is, are the opening lines of one of her short stories. And she has been traumatized, she's had a child die, she's, she, and she, like the Emma McBride narrator, goes looking for pain, right? She goes looking for pain, there's a kind of perversity in the way she behaves, but it's the pain that is the consequence of a trauma, but it's also slightly in excess of that. So she's not just saying you start behaving weirdly because something terrible happened to you. Jake, so something terrible happens to you, stay in touch with what's weird about the mind. It's another form of freedom. It is so high risk. I was once in discussion with Eamon McBride and we agreed this is so high risk. But the genius of her narrator looking for violence in the woods and so people can say, well, she's asking for it. Yeah, she's asking for it because of what happened to her. So those who say women ask for it are mistaking symptom for cause. They're saying, therefore, they want it. But no, it's so these writers go into this domain where I really think you have to go. And I think you have to go there for men as well, which is to say that yeah. you have to go. I mean, a number of your speakers said these are not easy conversations to have. These are not easy changes to make. We must start with little boys of four and five years old, which is to say we are touching on something that can't be sorted by just sitting in a room and saying, let's all talk about what we feel. It's just not going to work. It goes deeper than that. And that's what the literature gives to me, if you like. So, Jacqueline, there's a, some great questions here from a very engaged and a lot of great thinking going on here. So. 
Patsy Hickman says, can women and men ever find a forgiveness that, you know, will persevere? How can they persevere that gets beyond the anger and the mystification that goes, I suppose, you know, alongside with misogyny? There is, a, for me anyway, a mystification uh, about it. Can, can women and men find a forgiveness between them about something which we've inherited? Well, forgiveness is is such an explosive issue in relationship to South Africa. There's an amazing film that was made about the TRC where um, a man whose wife was murdered during the course of the, the fighting against apartheid um, was asked to forgive the murderers who were in the courtroom. And he said, I cannot I cannot forgive because um, that only God can forgive. So he said he couldn't do it or he could forgive them personally, but he couldn't forgive them absolutely. And of course, Hannah Arendt famously said that Eichmann's, Eichmann's actions in Nazi Germany were unforgivable and therefore he should hang. There was no solution to it. And I think rather than forgiveness, there's a form, a different kind of knowledge that is needed, which would actually undo. I mean, you say, can men forgive, can women forgive men, can men and women forgive each other? I think we might need to start with a questioning of the category of men and women, which is why trans is so important to the book. We should say that there is a precariousness around this divide which the culture insists on denying and accentuating the difference. So if you think of the attachment of little boys to the body of the mother, or the attachment of babies to the body of the mother, and you have to separate out to become a human, fully-fledged human subject, boys are encouraged to accentuate that detachment to a mile, and girls are encouraged to deny it into kind of osmose into the bodies of their mother. It's a disaster. Both solutions are unacceptable. And we need men and women to move across a space. Maybe then forgiveness, it's a brilliant question, maybe forgiveness would then follow. But what we need first is a different level of understanding. I know Judith Butler is here. If she wanted to come in, she would have a lot to say about this. Um, but thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I, I know that one of the things that um, struck me in the book again was we have to do thinking. Thinking is is an very, very, it's not the only thing we need to do, but you can't necessarily just start from where you're at and think you'll get to a different place. You have to do some radical rethinking. Uh, on the, the, another question here, which was about female violence against women. Um, you know, is that something which she said, I wonder, does the book address female violence against women as well, both psychologically and physically? What could you say about that? Well, I went to um, the one hearing of the court case of Shafilia Ahmed, whose sister had been killed by her parents in what a so-called honour killing. And the mother had held her down when the father killed her. And I realized that presented us, and halfway, sorry, I should say this, halfway through the evidence, both the parents having effectively called, accused their surviving daughter of lying for weeks, 
the mother changed witness. She changed testimony. And she said, actually, my husband killed her and I saw it, which was so shocking because she'd allowed her surviving daughter to stand in the courtroom being accused of lying for several weeks. And then she changed her testimony simply, clearly, to get herself off the hook. It seemed to me we were left with a huge quandary. The husband was clearly a bully. So one solution is to say he forced her to do it. But the trouble with that is that you then rob her of any agency in her own life. Or you can say she willingly embraced a crime that for any mother is inconceivable, right, which is the murder of your own child. It's almost impossible to think of it unless you politicize that question and you're Toni Morrison writing Beloved, where the mother kills the child to save it from going into a worse life of slavery. Right, so there are there are narratives of the murder of of a child, but I felt I just felt, and I don't have an answer to this question, that neither of those solutions were satisfactory. I didn't want to rob her of all agency, but nor did I want to turn her into a monster, and I didn't know how to negotiate it. So I think it's just a very very difficult question. It is crucial to say that women are capable of violence. If you see sexual differences precarious and a form of violence in itself in its absolutist form, then of course women are also capable of violence. Marilyn Monroe famously said, I am violent, I have violence in me. You could say one of the curses of femininity is that it forces women to deny their violence. But so both sexes, I would say, have violence in them. One of your speakers, Jude, said, uh, hate is not inborn, as mm -hmm. if negative affect was something that is landed on you rather than something that you feel out of the frustrations and rages of being an infant. But it is the case that in our culture, men externalize their violence and women tend to internalize it. There's a different distribution of how violence works. I think all this needs to be thought about, but I don't want to render women innocent. I don't think that's mm. helpful. No, I, I, and also that one of the things that is so complicated when people kill their partners because of years of domestic abuse, oh. it seems necessary to say that they were not of sound mind, whereas you could actually say they were a very sound very mind. Very sound mind. <laughs> um, and so that whole issue of, yes, w w women not fitting in with the idea of um, passivity is, is a problem for society. There's another uh, one here. Um, Ashley, tell us if third wave feminism deconstructed the category women uh, did it not also destroy the category of men? So how do we hold on to the idea of, of, of a hegemonic masculinity? Um, so I suppose it's, a, it's, it's that idea of if we have been trying to pull down ideas of binary representation and beingness, which we have, and, the, and which is so much part of trans, uh, the, the education that has come to us through trans, well, I would suggest that men haven't caught up, they haven't had as much need or haven't felt they had as much need to have that conversation about deconstruction yet. Is that true? Well, some men have, but as I would say, not enough. But mm. I'm also going to be anecdotal here, which is I have a very dear old friend who I've known since I was 16 years old, who became a father very young. And when his son was about 12 or 13, he said, I've got to let him be a complete chauvinist pig because otherwise he'll feel inadequate and a failure and he'll spend the rest of his life longing to be one. Whereas if I allow him to be one for a few years, he'll see how ridiculous it is and he'll discard it. Well, I thought that was pretty high risk. 
And a few years ago, he said to me, my son is a thug. And I thought this was, I thought this really was, a, it hadn't worked, but you know, it really hadn't worked. And anybody probably could have told him it was unlikely to work. On the other hand, I do think something important here, which is if you're going to say that women are not the embodiment and fulfillment of the stereotype of femininity, which the culture enjoins on them, and if you're making that, as I say in the book, the beating heart of women's liberation, because I always say to my students, if patriarchy wasn't effective, we wouldn't need feminism, but if it was 100% effective, we wouldn't have feminism, right? So you have to open the gap for there to be any chance of transformation. Would well, you have to give the same right to men? You have to allow them not to be the worst version of what the culture expects them to be. And one of the chapters in the book discusses the case of Richard, uh, Melanie Klein's narrative of a child analysis, who talks all the time about Hitler daddy bombing pigsty mummy. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. It is very clear by the end of the tale, and it's a 350 page narrative of one child analysis, that this child is struggling not to be Hitler daddy. It repulses him, it frightens him, and it betrays him. And he is up against it. It's like watching a child face with the alternatives and it's making him ill. But the struggle in the end makes him strong and he ends up feeling compassion for his enemies. It's, it's an absolutely extraordinary case. I couldn't believe it when I read it properly for the first time. So the simple answer is yes, I couldn't agree with you more that we need masculinity to be given the same space as we've given femininity as the groundwork of feminism. We need to do it. But if you're a radical feminist like Catherine McKinnon, that's a contradiction in terms. Just as female power for her is a contradiction in terms. But I think yeah, it's crucial, absolutely crucial. Yeah, I, I agree with you that the, the thing I'm longing for is the moment when men, we want that space. I mean, some men want it, but, you know, we need more men to want that space. Women had a need. Men need to realize they have the need. And it's it's kind of harder to get that understood. There's a good question here about basically about education. And, and obviously you do talk in the book about, you know, boys, how to begin teaching boys that kind of whole debate about when do you begin? And you've just said, you know, at the beginning, you begin at the beginning. But we don't have anything. I mean, all that, um, you know, explosion that isn't new, actually, about sexual trauma and harassment in schools. It isn't actually new. We've known that for a long time. But, you know, it's it's finally coming out in a new form. Um, boys aren't expected to be educated, are they? Girls are expected to moderate the sexual landscape and boys are expected just to explode into it. So. What, where do you think we could go with education from Joanna Orr? Well, I love your distinction. Girls are expected to moderate and men and boys are expected to explode into it. I think that's a beautiful distinction. I tell you what I think the problem is here. When um, I'm trying to find his name, I was so impressed. Uh, I think it was Ben Hurst, Boys Won't Be Boys. And yeah. he was it's not an easy conversation to have and it's not an easy change 
to make and he had this expression of embrace the awkward we have to embrace the awkward and i thought he was so on the right trail there because conversation in buys communication but if you add a psychoanalytic dimension to the argument which i always do because it's how i think and how i find what i find creative to think with then there's really a big problem with this which is that we are not fully in possession of our own thoughts and some of the things that we feel are so deeply embedded in the unconscious it's almost impossible to access them and i say almost impossible Melanie Klein is there as one of many child analysts who go down that path, but you're not going to analyze all little boys, right? You've got to find a space in which what is unspeakably painful about identity and violence and wishes you wish you didn't have and sides of your personality you hate and are ashamed of, you have to find a space within which that can be acknowledged, which is why the book is also a call for what I describe as a more psychoanalytically attuned culture, where people's hesitancy about who they are at the deepest level would be given some kind of space to breathe. And I think we live in a culture where that is terribly difficult. So I would just like to take embrace the awkward factor in the unconscious as that which makes it so hard to do that, but even more necessary. There's just one thing I'd like to say about that, which is there's a, Melanie Klein was no feminist, um, but there's a wonderful line in one of her essays where she says, um, all boys go through a femininity phase, which is to say, because both boys and girls are right up against the body of the mother to begin with, most, not everybody's born of a mother these days, it's more complex, but they're right up against the body of the mother, that's how the division of labor is mostly performed. They go through a femininity phase where there isn't sexual difference yet. They're just tied up with that body and they become like the mother. To become a man, you have to repudiate that with absolute virulence. You have to get rid of it. And Klein then says this, and I'm as quoting as much as I can or as close as I can. This explains why male violence against women is so much more asocial than male violence against men. And I think what she means by that is male violence against men is what men are meant to be doing. They're meant to be measuring up in the changing room. They're meant to be going to battle. They're meant to be fighting in the boardroom. That's what they're meant to be doing. That's boys will be boys, right? But what they're not, what, the reason why their violence against women is more asocial is because it's based on a repudiated connection which is to say that they have to get rid of something. And that's why their violence against women is so lethal and mm -hmm. dangerous at another level and outside the realms of the social and intimate and private. Most women who are killed are killed by their partners or ex-partners. You say it's intimately bound up with the problem of intimacy. So I suppose what I'm saying, I'm drifting a bit, I apologize. But I suppose what I'm saying is that we need men to do this work, but we need to acknowledge how difficult it is for them because everything in the culture is pushing them the other way. And I don't think that's been explored or examined enough. The, the, I, I want to, we haven't got a question in here, but in your book, you rightly give a chapter to migrant women and you talk about the um, oh, treatment yeah. of migrant women in Yarlswood and you say that not only 
are they being punished for being foreigners? Are they being punished for being women? And it, it made me think as we were talking about pigsty, mummy pigsty. When, when I read that in the book, this little boy saying, you know, this daddy Hitler and mummy pigsty, you think the idea that she's sort of disheveled and improper, you know, um, chaotic, all the things we've talked about, which women aren't allowed to be, it makes it hard not to despise her, even though you're pitying her. Um, and it, you know, one of the things that we have in a lot of our um, women who are homeless or uh, um, ruthless and uh, fall on the care of the state is that they can't hold together the kind of dignity that women are somehow expected to just summon. And it seems to produce in a lot of people, and particularly the men who are looking after them, a kind of sadism around mm. them, you know, as if they, they're not proper. It, it debases them. And I, I, I wondered if you just talk a little bit about why we choose as societies to know this is happening, but somehow not know it. Well, I don't think that's really a question. I think it's a brilliant description of what's going on. I mean, the, the, the work on women at the border was horrendous. And at several moments, I thought, I'm not sure I want to be writing this because it's a litany. It's not what I normally do. It's a litany of, of horror. And the drowning child and um, on the border with Mexico and then Ostasia Cortez went and visited and all these sexual memes that started flooding out from the border guards who were exchanging um, Facebook or YouTube, I can't remember what it was, but it was just like horrendous over-sexualization of her for wanting to expose what was happening at the border. And I think you're right, which is that the point, the point at which the border is seen to be unviable or impossible to police or control or keep in place, the people who get punished for it sexually are the women because the way that we've been treating it, Yarl's Wood, and we went back and forth with the lawyers in the, in the book over this, and I was forced to put in Circo's denials that any of this was taking place although I hope and trust my readers will know exactly what I think about those denials, right? Um, I mean, this is work that's been exposed by Amelia Gentleman and Natasha Walter. I mean, it's just been relentless what's been emerging. But I think you're right, which is that there's something about the border which was at the heart, of course, of Brexit. It's at the heart of Trump's election and the wall in Mexico. And I quote Howard Cagle in the book, talking about how because the social arrangements inside the city-state under capitalism are unjust, then violence, the violence of our existing social arrangements gets displaced onto the border. So instead of acknowledging, and this is your point about now, instead of acknowledging the violence, say, of capitalism and inequality and racism, what you do is you say we are threatened by something on our border which we must repudiate and push away. And then at that point, because it touches on visceral questions of the borders of our own bodies, the borders of our nations, it starts to sexualize itself and then women really get it. I mean, it's a particularly heady and upsetting brew and it's certainly not getting any better at the moment. Um, and and no. I think it requires a lot of attention. I'm not sure that this was one of the topics actually at your wonderful marathon. I'm not sure whether well, it was. 
Well, one of the things that we talked, well, we talked about so many things there, there but I, I, I know that, you know, rape as a weapon of war as well, which is one of the questions here, mass weapon of war, and actually a, a way of creating state security um, is something which society still seems to, of course it doesn't condone it, but it, it accepts it. it. It just is one of those things as if, well, twas ever thus. This is the thing that I think is so frightening that even when people talk about how horrific this is as an act, it's along with other aspects of war, just goes with the territory. Um, and, and I wondered whether, you know, historically, has there ever been a time when that hasn't been the case and it's been challenged properly? Because it still seems to be something which we just say, well, that, that's something you can't do anything about. Well, this is a huge and difficult area. And I think the first thing we have to say is that rape as a war crime is an intended and calculated act, for example, in Serbia, of ethnic cleansing. And it's an attempt to wipe out a people by mixing and polluting their blood. And this has been going on in Eritrea and Ethiopia in the last couple of months. It's been extensively reported on Channel 4 News. So on the one hand, it's it's a tool of war, it's a weapon of war, it's part of an activity of war. On the other hand, I was very affected by something that Juliet Mitchell wrote quite a long time ago, where she said, the law of the father is obviously to pass down the legacy of the family uh, lineage and so on, and its property. But she said, there's also a law of the mother. The law of the mother is basically to stop little boys killing each other in the nursery because there's a violence inside the home and the mother has to put a stop to it. So that violence is unlicensed, profound and rarely spoken about. When people go to war, there is therefore bound to be, because you're giving permission to men to be violent in ways that the state normally retains the prerogative of, there is bound to be not just licensed violence, but unlicensed violence, which is to say looting. People say, oh dear, there was looting. And then they will say exactly what you're objecting to, Jude. Well, there always is. Oh, there was rape, and there always is. And I think in a sense, she's saying the two forms of violence are embedded in the nursery. That's to say sexualized violence and straight up masculine game-playing violence. That's it. it's all rooted in those earlier it's about, this is, takes us on very tricky ground, and I won't go into it too much. It's about how the law implants itself in the human mind, because we all have a voice telling us what to do. We have to internalize the voice that tells us to be good, that tells us to be nice, that tells us to behave well, tells us to be who we're meant to be. We hate it, right? We dream better, we behave better, i.e. worse, I hope. But the trouble is that voice, if you call it what Freud calls it, the superego, the voice telling us to be nice is not a nice voice. It's vicious, controlling, manic, and crazed, right? It's all of those things. So there is what you might call, and some people have written about, a perversion at the heart of the process whereby we become social subjects. There's something nasty locked into the very process whereby we become normal, right? So I don't want to fall into the trap of saying it's always been thus. 
But I would want to say that to understand the way rape is the accompaniment of war, you have to look into the dark heart of how violence distributes itself in the human mind. And I think that's a very difficult terrain. Yeah. And, and in a way, you've touched there on this double fraudulence, the fraudulence that tells women to be nice and, and kind of in all kinds of ways closes down all aspects that are sensuous, violent, erotic, um, wild, freeing, you know, as well as the fraudulence that says men are powerful. So the, these are these double fraudulences, which we can only escape from by being real and honest, you know, which is, is a complex, vulnerable honesty. Beautiful, um, vulnerable honesty is good. I like it. I'm going to end with a final question from uh, Yu Wang, who I think joins us from Beijing tonight. Uh, and she says that she's happy to see you virtually. Um, and she wants to ask a question about violence online. Uh, how, you know, the Internet has produced this tidal wave, I would say, um, of, uh, you know, unsuppressed violence, of something which no longer is, is moderated. You know, in a way you can, you can, Creatively apply violence as a as a as a troll in unimaginable ways that you couldn't do in real life or face to face. What yeah. what do you think is happening to to the perpetrators? What what happens when that level of violence starts being expressed online? I don't think I have an answer to the question, except to say that I think there's a relationship between the intensification of violence online. And the absolute nobody of Zuckerberg sitting in the courtroom arguing about privacy. And there was, I don't know if other people felt this, and this may feel a slightly trivial note to end on it, but I really felt there was nobody there. I felt he was like a mask and a function and a controller and a multimillionaire who was just orchestrating the world in the ways that would allow him to bring in as much capital as he possibly could accumulate. And I think the violence online is inseparable from the forms of material accumulation it's permitting to the most powerful technocrats in the Western world. I think they're related to each other. But otherwise, I don't know what to say about it, except that I share, I, it's a generational thing. I mean, I share with many people a sense of dread about the way this is playing itself out. To put alongside it, though, of course, there was a feeling that social media, great democratization, and it has had its moments of that. But I think we're now on the sinister down path, and I don't know how it's going to play itself out. So it's not a good answer to a very good question. Thank you. So one of the things in the book which pulled me up short, although I suppose I already knew it in a way, was that when 9-11 happened, uh, the number of people who were killed in that building or that in, in, at Ground Zero were pretty much the same number as women that year in the US killed by their male partners. Um, and then if you think about the scale and ongoing attack in order to, to get retribution and, and reinforce power, put power back um, in the hands of the people who thought they ought to have it. It bears no relationship at all 
to the other figures of all of those women individually killed. And so, you know, we, we seem to have no way at the moment of understanding the impact of women's death versus deaths of people in circumstances that we have decide, decided are properly horrific. Um, and so, and so now what? Um, I mean, your book isn't trying to answer the now what, except in as much as you say, we must talk about it in its full fearsomeness. We must face it. There's a wonderful quote in the book from a, a South African activist called Petrus Brink, and he says, this is dot dot, this is dot dot, this is really not working. And I thought the the softness of that to, you know, express looking out at that trauma in South Africa and looking out at the trauma in generally, it, it is true. This is not working. So I think what your book says is you love humanity. You make that clear. You're prepared to have hope. You make that clear. This is not working. That is true. So it's up to us to carry on and make sure that we work on it in a different kind of way. Thank you, Jacqueline, for being a wonderful thinker and a wonderful writer and a wonderful communicator and um, and for bringing something which a lot of the writers that you talk about do as well, which is you know, bringing love into the arena, because you, you wouldn't do all of this about violence if you didn't love people and want the world to be better for them and us. Thanks and um, thanks LRB, of course, for being so intelligent. Um, and a, a great night, Jacqueline. Thanks a lot. Thank thanks you. Thank you so much. I can't thank you enough, really. And thank you for everybody who's been here and for great questions. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.